Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show with your host, Scott Fullerton, as we discuss everything under the rainbow sun, from LGBT issues to foodies, entertainment to books. Join us as we talk to some of the most interesting leaders and celebrity LGBT guests and allies on the internet. So grab a cocktail, it's always happy hour somewhere, and enjoy the show. Now, here's your host, Scott Fullerton. Howdy, 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 everybody. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show, guys. It is Tuesday, September 15, 2020. I am your host, Scott Fullerton, and we are back this week after a three-week mid-season hiatus after six months of lots of shows, and we're slowly getting back to normal with some all-new interviews this week. They've mostly been pre-taped while I was on break. And then next week, we'll be getting back to our live interviews again. Have the interns back in next week and uh, getting things back to normal here. We only have about another week and a half left of the interns, and they are moving on to better things. I have to get a whole new crop in here pretty soon. So they've been doing a fantastic job. Hope you guys are having a great start to the week. If you missed yesterday's show, we got back in the swing of things on our first show back with a Music Monday Talked about some of our friends' newest music that was released over the last couple of weeks. Our friends Hayden Joseph, Cameron Hawthorne, and Jay Knight released some new music. We know our good friends Fab the Duo and Stuart Taylor are creating some music in studio right now. So we did a great mix of music yesterday, and that was lots of fun. And coming up in just a little while today, we are going to talk to a actor, director, and writer who had a film in the Outfest Film Festival that was digital this year out of L.A., and the film was called Two Eyes. His name is Travis Fine, and we had a great interview a couple weeks back right at the end of Outfest, so we're going to play that interview for you in just a little while. Uh, We're going to start out with today our friend David Reddish is going to be on in just a couple seconds. Of course, he is the entertainment editor for the great website Queerty, where I find a lot of my news from every day. So he'll be joining us in just a little bit. Uh, Other than that, I hope you guys, like I said, are having a great start to the week. We are getting things back to normal here. We're setting up for new Patreon page next week. If you're not following on social media, please do. You can follow me on Facebook at the Left of Straight Show. And you can follow me personally by sending a friend request to Scott Fullerton. And on Instagram and Twitter, it's at Left of Straight. Left of Straight is always spelled L-E-F-T-O-F-S-T-R and the number eight. And my interns have their own social media as well, Left of Straight Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So look for all that. So lots of fun stuff going on there. We're going to talk about all the news we talked about 
Chris Evans and Captain America yesterday. That was kind of a fun story. If you haven't seen that, be sure to head over to Queerty.com. Q-U-E-E-R-T-Y.com is a great website that has all sorts of news and entertainment, political, and everything else that David is the editor of. So we're going to have them on in just a couple seconds. So that's what's going on on our side. We're looking forward to it. Let's go ahead and bring in the aforementioned Mr. David Reddish. Of course, again, he is the editor, entertainment editor for Queerty.com, one of my favorite sites. David, how you been, buddy? Hey, man. How's it going? I get by. I'm doing okay. It's uh, crazy busy as usual, but uh, I'm holding it together, which is important. I like that. I like it. We both need a vacation. I have not had mine yet. If you got out of town recently, neither of us have left. Um, I, I know. I, I, there's very little, very, very few places to go at the moment, obviously. Um, I did take a few right. days off uh, last month just to rest myself. I hadn't had a real day off in about two years. So I desperately needed time off, especially with taking on an extra workload because of COVID. So um, exactly. I rested, and now I'm back, and now I need a vacation again, as is this, you know, there you the cycle go. of these things. Because you can't leave because of COVID, and if you were able to leave, they're all everything's on fire. So where could you go, really, <laughs> right now, right? Well, well, now, yeah. Good Lord, it smells smoke every day. It's terrible. Uh, it's so bad. The pictures I'm seeing are so sad. I mean, we're used to seeing – I mean, I, I tease my friends back here in Ohio all the time – that California has always been kind of known for we're back in Ohio. We have spring, summer, winter, fall. And in California, we have rain, mudslides, fire, and construction, but for the four seasons, but it's usually not yet. It usually waits till November and a Santa Ana or two blow through. So you guys are hitting it hardcore, my friend. Well, it's the whole coast is lit up into Washington all the way through Oregon. Yeah. And they actually have it much worse than we do right now in Los Angeles. So my uh, colleagues in San Francisco say they can barely breathe, that the whole sky is orange and it's terrifying. It's like something out of a, a, a horror movie. But right, it's what we deal with. You know, God bless the firefighters. So There you go. Thank goodness for them. That's for sure. Well, my yeah. friend, it's been a couple of weeks since we've got to talk because we are a little hiatus there. Everything else been doing good otherwise? You doing well? Oh, absolutely. I, I'm getting some great material together right now. Uh, the Toronto Film Festival is going on right now, so I've been looking at some of those films remotely, of course. They're not allowing any reporters on the ground in Toronto, which is a shame. Right. Um, I've been there the past two years and come back with some incredible material uh, and seen some amazing movies. Uh, and the Frameline Film Festival up in San Francisco is happening again at the end of this week. Uh, they're doing a full online rollout for the full festival lineup. So uh, that's exciting also. It's a lot of great uh, queer-themed movies to look at. There you go. In fact, that's going to be our interview. When you and I are done, I'm talking to Travis Fine, who did Two Eyes at Outfest. Was oh, yeah. that one of the films you got to see? I did. I, I interviewed um, Kate Bornstein uh, for Two Eyes. She oh, nice. has a, a key role in it. And Kate is somebody who has been very formative for me. She's an amazing, amazing woman, uh, incredible gender theorist, incredible queer activist. Uh, so the opportunity to talk to her for a half hour was something I'd been gunning at for 20 years. I got it. I, I will die happy now. So uh, that is yes. amazing. But the movie is very good. Yes. 
the movie is very, very good. She's good in it. Uh, and it's told with such sensitivity. It's a very, very tender film. I quite liked it. So There you go. Well, this is an interview I had with Travis a couple weeks back. And he is a great interview in and of himself. I mean, he's been in some of my favorite things as an actor, plus his directing and yeah. writing work has been top notch. And I had actually... Um, Ryan Casado, one of the leads of the film, has been on my show as a musician, and I knew he was an actor, but oh. I never got to see any of his work till then, till this sh- movie. So I was I was quite impressed with his acting ability. So it was it was a good yeah. good interview for me all the way around. I enjoyed it. That's fantastic. What's some of the movies you're um, perusing now that you're allowed to talk about that you that uh, you're really uh, keen on right now? Anything you're allowed to uh, say? Uh, well, I can tell you this week, uh, this week has some very, very big titles dropping. First off, Antebellum, which is Janelle Monet's new film. Uh, it's a horror film. I really like it, actually. I know it's getting sort of mixed buzz, but I think that's because the, the conceit of this movie, the concept of it, is racism as horror. Not the horrors of racism, but that racism is something out of a horror film. Um, Ooh, Monet like does... Yes. Monet does wonderful work in it, as do Gabrielle Sidibe, um, uh, Jenna Malone, uh, uh, Lily Coles, who people will recognize. She's actually uh, uh, Christine Baranski's daughter uh, and sounds just like her mother. Her, her cadence and her, the tone of her voice, uh, I was able to, she sounds just like her mom. Uh, and it's very, very oh, sweet. Cool. Uh, they're all very good in the movie. Um, it's a, it's a film best experience. So I don't want to say too much about it because I don't want to give anything away, but Janelle Monet plays two different characters or two women in two different time periods in this that are somehow connected. And, um, it's, it's a very frightening movie in places. Uh, that's exciting. Uh, of course, Ratchet, which you and I have talked about before that drops on Friday uh, right. Very excited for that. Uh, just so I can talk about it with other people who will actually have seen the show uh, because it's terrific. Um, one of my other favorites, uh, it was just on HBO last Saturday, I believe, with Coastal Elites, written by the great Paul Rudnick, um, uh, which is all I about the say, Trump I got to say, David, era. I read that interview yeah. with Paul, and I thought it was an amazing interview you did for Queerity. Talk about that experience. I think he is such a great uh I, I just love uh, got I can't say enough about him. Talk about that, how the interview went, and talk about the show itself. I mean, gracious, very down-to-earth, very friendly, easy-to-talk-to guy. I mean, he was absolutely, absolutely wonderful. And given that he's a humorist and is known for kind of his sharp zingers in movies like In and Out or Adam's Family Values or Jeffrey, uh, the different films that he's written, I thought, oh, maybe, you know, you never know with comedians. Sometimes they're just really nasty people in person. No, he was, he was absolutely warm and delightful, um, very gracious. Uh, the film itself I really enjoyed. It's an experimental film in the sense that it's five different characters delivering monologues to the screen. I was told by HBO not to refer to it as a movie. It was supposed to be a special presentation because they didn't want people to be uh, put off by the format, I guess. Um, right. But it's five, five actors, Catherine uh, uh, Dreyer, uh, Bette Midler, Dan Levy, Issa Rae, and uh, Miss Sarah Paulson, um, all playing people coping with the COVID-19 pandemic. So they're all talking to somebody on webcam uh, and describing just the insanity of the past few years. Um, and, and Paul is the kind of writer, he's a very, very intelligent man. Uh, 
Um, and the subtlety of a lot of his humor, the way that it's obviously this is a political piece, but it's not always political in the way you think it is. And the political right. point of view is not necessarily the coastal elite progressive one either. Um, it, I really enjoyed the balance. and I enjoyed a lot of the, the sort of social commentary in it, uh, commentary on, on movements like Black Lives Matter, on the inclusion of uh, queer performers and queer characters in the movies, in specifically big budget Hollywood films. Um, right. just, just going to the coffee shop and how do you deal with somebody that, that is egging you on with his, his Make America Great Again hat just for the sake of pissing you off, not because he has a point. I mean, uh, Rednick's the only writer I've seen so far that really tackles these things uh, so expansively. So I would advise our listeners to go out and uh, check out Coastal Elites. It's, it's very, very funny. Um, and I he was, am he was wonderful. for sure so. after reading that article. It was excellent. Oh, well, that's great. Um, yeah, I, and everyone else can check out the article on, on Queerty.com. Uh, I'm sure Paul would love that. We're already talking about having him back sometime soon. There are so many other projects of his I'd like to talk about. So Nice. Um, what else on your radar? I mean, I have a couple things I told you I want to talk about. They did announce a casting for my Hallmark movie, or my Lifetime yes. movie, I guess. Yes. I'm very Lifetime excited Christmas about that. Movies. Lifetime uh, Christmas movie with a superhero, movie. someone from my Arrowverse, which makes me even more happy, <laughs> and a real-life yes. couple. Talk about this. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so the title oh of the gosh. film is The Christmas Setup. And to give our listeners a little bit of uh, context, there has been a, a, a sort of PR wars, I guess, over how to include LGBTQ characters in these you know, Lifetime and Hallmark Christmas movies that were just flooded with them, you know, starting sometime in mid-October and they go all the way until mid-January. And, you know, they always involve romance and they involve characters finding true love and the magic of Christmas and lots of snowy settings. And it's always somebody that is from the city finding love in a small town. And there's this whole, you know, Americana nostalgia idealization uh, going on. So um, both Hallmark and Lifetime uh, have, have said that they wanted to include LGBTQ characters. Hallmark, I don't want to go into the whole story, but they sort of didn't handle it as well as they could have. First saying, yeah, they were going to do it, then sort of backing away from it, then saying, well, we are going to do it, but we don't know what to do. And uh, it, it's just, it's sort of been a mess. Lifetime, on the other hand, sort of showed them up because rather than go through this whole kerfuffle, they just said, oh, yeah, we're doing a gay Christmas movie this year. The cast was announced today. Uh, it's uh, Real Life Husbands. Um, what is it? Uh, 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 oh, gosh, what are their names? I, my, my brain just died. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Um, no, I got it here. It's uh, Ben Lewis and Blake Lee. Ben Lewis and Blake Lee. Yes, thank you. Um, the Real Life Husbands, uh, you'll know them from uh, – you'll know Lee from uh, – the TV series Fam from Parks and Re- uh, Recreation. And, of course, uh, Lewis is uh, from Arrow, like you mentioned. Uh, Fran Drescher will be playing one of their mothers. Uh, she's the matchmaker in this. And uh, actress Ellen Wong is going to play the best friend. So it's all about two boys finding love on Christmas. And I'm excited to see just what comes out of this this scenario, you know. I am too. I mean, like we talked about it before when they announced they were going to do it. I am a huge Hallmark and Lifetime Christmas movie fan. I watch all of them every year. And I kind of had my secret hopes that they might do a couple because of all the people I've met through the show, people like 
Adam Bucci and Adam Huss, who are great LGBT actors. And, of course, you have uh, Taylor Frey and Kyle Dean Massey and all these great yeah. actors that have they had such great possibilities. So it's kind of fun to see that they picked two husbands to do it. Um, it'll be, it'll be uh, a lot of responsibility on their shoulders that I don't necessarily uh, wish they had to deal with. But it's going to be yeah. kind of fun to see how it turns out. I'm looking forward to it a lot. Well, if you no. want to hear my theory on this, this is this is fun, and this is an exclusive because I haven't shared this anywhere yet. I think part of the reason they cast the husbands has to do with the pandemic because in order for them to be able to shoot scenes of intimacy, you need people who are always in close contact with one another per the new regulations for shooting during the COVID pandemic. So for the mm. two of them to both get work out of it is fantastic, but that also hints that there will be some very, very intimate scenes for us to see i don't know if we'll be getting sex scenes in a christmas movie but just the idea that they're going to show two men in a christmas film being physically affectionate with one another makes me very excited yeah i still think we're only going to see maybe two pecks on the cheek <laughs> one, one full <laughs> kiss and a couple pecks on the cheek my personal feeling on that now now i have heard that the way they're doing it in canada now because a lot of filming has resumed in Canada, and tell me if it's what your sources yeah. and the people you talk to are saying, they're basically bringing people up there and making them quarantine for two weeks before they go on to set. Yeah. So I don't know yeah. if that's helping things at not or how that's working out, but I knew that's how they were trying to go about it. What have you heard about how filming is like up there right now? I mean, I, I had heard that as well because shows and, and films are slowly starting to pick up the, you know, get it back into production. They are making foreigners quarantine for two weeks. But of course, the virus is still in Canada. It is still present there. It hasn't just gone away. So even when they right. are able to work, they have to have certain precautions because of COVID. So um, I, I think that's probably part of it. I'll be interested to see how, how these scenes play out in the final film. If it will look like they were all shot at different times on different sets with different people or, or if they're, everybody's in the same frame, you know. That's sort of the big right. question right now, I think, for a lot of production. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. I mean, just our superheroes that you and I like alone, I mean, how are we going to do fight <laughs> How do you do fight scenes in the age of COVID, right? Um, well, it's CGI, be very... the same way they've been doing them without <laughs> same way they do it without well, COVID, yeah, but there is some contact there at least so, so we'll see what happens, yeah. I don't know, it's going to be interesting what's yeah. next on your hot button, my friend, anything else in your fans? Well, you so, yeah, and this is one that you had even mentioned, uh, we have a new law here in the state of California um, unfortunately the right wing is spinning this as we have legalized pedophilia and that is not at all true uh, what actually has happened is that we have closed a loophole here uh, that was giving uh, preferential treatment to heterosexual people over same-sex people. So this pertains to a sodomy law, to uh, the statutory rape laws. Um, uh, prior to this new law passage, uh, so this new law is called SB 145, and prior to this, um, judges could decide whether somebody needed to be on, if, if someone had had uh, vaginal intercourse, there was uh, some discretion if the judge wanted them to have to, it, to have to register as a sex offender as well. Uh, for uh, somebody convicted of uh, oral or uh, anal intercourse, so somebody that would have been uh, in a same-sex relationship, 
they were automatically sex offenders. They did not have that same discretion. So this loophole has been closed, so now a judge has the discretion. If a 17-year-old is in a relationship with a 16-year-old, you know, something like that, or an 18-year-old is in a relationship with a 16-year-old, say two guys in high school, um, the 18-year-old will no longer have to register to a sex offender if the judge feels that's appropriate. So we haven't done right. away with anything. It's just been uh, finding uh, equity in the law, you know, uh, really Yeah, quality. I like it a lot. I mean, I saw how they're spinning it, so I kind of looked into it a little bit more. And it's exactly – one of the things I like is the legislation was brought up by an openly gay Democrat senator, Scott Weiner, which yes. unfortunate name, but it is what it is. But anyway, <laughs> so – he brought this – he's the one that introduced this bill, and as you said, the old rule was if someone was, was between 14 – if in this case, it had to be a woman. If a, if a girl yeah. was between 14 and 17 years old and the guy she had consensual sex with was less than 10 years older than her, the judge yeah. had the discretion whether to throw these extra charges on, but it only had to do with – girl-guy relationships. Now, it's the same set of rules, same thing. It has to be between 14 and 17. You can't have a 12-year-old or anything and get off the hook for this. It's still the same 14 to 17 years. It still has to be under the 10-year age limit, but now it has to do with um, gay men's sex as well as women's sex. Um, so yeah, as, as heterosexual sex. So that's the only difference. They have not done away with any of the laws that were not there on, they've just protected um, gay men, which is about time. So good on him. Yes. Good old Scott Wiener. And I'll try not to yes. laugh when I say his name anymore. Good on Scott Wiener and good on Governor Newsom for uh, signing this into law. Both of them, obviously, because of the nature of what they're doing, they're going to take heat for it. Um, right. But it's the right thing to do, and it provides equality under the law, which is what we're all working for. Exactly. No, I saw that. Yeah. I was very happy about that. Yeah. Very, very well. So, Anything else on your radar, my friends? Oh, gosh. I'm working on a really big, uh, really big story, but I can't tell you what it is yet. And I wish I could uh, because I just started the first round of interviews today. Uh, this will be coming out next month. And I guess I can give you the hint that it's the 20th anniversary of, uh, of a certain movie, and we're doing an in-depth uh, history of it. So, uh, Oh, my God. We are, so <laughs> we are so talking off air. We are so talking off air. I'm excited. I, I mean, it's great. A lot of things are happening right now. I mean, you guys had a great article um, referring to the article Yahoo did with John Leguizamo and the, tw- and the 25th yeah. anniversary of – to Wong Fu, I'm actually going through my buddy Stan to try to get a hold of Barry Boswick because this month is the 45 year anniversary of Rocky Horror Picture Show. So I'm oh trying to get with Barry right now because uh, Stan directed Barry in a couple of things. So there's a lot of really cool anniversaries of great movies shows. So I can't wait to hear what this is all about and see what your reporting brings. That's exciting. Very cool. It is. It's very exciting, uh, and you'll love who who's going to be part of the piece. It's, I'm very excited and nervous. I don't get nervous very often, but I'm nervous given some of the some of the people I have to talk to. Wow, about, so. that is a big one. Then, did you do yeah. anything for Golden Girls Day yesterday? It was all over my feed <laughs> yesterday. I, I I didn't. You know, Mondays are always so hard for me. I always have so so much going on, um, and I had to <laughs> patch a hole in my door. Um, oh no! I, I had. 
Yeah, I, well, we had one of those really, really old. It's older than I am, which is really saying something at this point. But it was a very old, like, doorbell that was sort of, like, built into the door. And it was broken. It didn't work anymore. So I had to take the old one out um, and, and fill in the hole. Uh, so our door is nice and sturdy and is much more aesthetically pleasing now. <laughs> I would just go with a lightsaber incident and leave it at that. You had to replace the door <laughs> to a lightsaber incident. That'd be my personal hey, yeah. choice, but no, very cool. <laughs> nice. There's nothing wrong with that. I I am a proud owner of five different lightsabers. I have no shame. There you go. That, so. Jealous hell over here, I'll tell you. All right, well, David Reddish, we should get into uh, my interview here. It's a pre-tape interview, so you and I are going to talk off air, and I'm going to bend your okay. ear a bit. Let everyone know where they can find this amazing website you work at and uh, talk about uh, – What's going on in the coming weeks or coming days here? Uh, well, uh, you can find all my work at queerty.com. Uh, you can check it with us for everything from political news to pop culture news. Uh, we have some big uh, interviews coming up, including I have interviews with Janelle Monet, uh, with Sarah Paulson, with Cynthia Nixon, and with Miss Sharon Stone uh, that are all slated to go up in the next few days. So I'm excited for everyone to see those. And, uh, yeah, beyond that, can't say too, too much, but there's always something exciting coming. Amazing. David Reddish, entertainment editor of Queerty, thanks so much for being a special correspondent on the Left of Straight show. We definitely appreciate you, my friend. Always my pleasure. Thanks so much, Scott. All right, stand the line for me, my friend. We are going to play out a little song here. When I come back on the other side, I'm going to be talking to the aforementioned Mr. Travis Fine, actor, writer, and director of the recently screened at Outfest film Two Eyes. You're listening to the Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network. Give me all you have, but I'm still breathing. But I'll hold on to the We can fight all night, but I'll still be there. Gonna hold on tight until the end. But I'm out
righty, guys and gals, we are back. That was Fly by Unsung Lily. Unsung Lily recently went back to the UK. I was so happy to have a chance to interview them last month. You might want to check them out in the archives. But speaking of Fly, that's just one of the talents of my next guest. He's actually a licensed pilot, but beyond that, he's also an amazing actor, writer, producer, and director. While you may have seen him in some great roles in everything from sci-fi television like Quantum Leap to scenes in Girl Interrupted and featured in the role as Eric Menendez in the film about the infamous brothers who killed their parents. He may best be known, though, for his time behind the camera, working with Academy Award winners as he did on his film The Space Between, to the powerful drama about two gay men trying to adopt a young boy with Down syndrome in the period drama Any Day Now. Both of those were multiple award winners, and he's currently doing the world premiere in this year's Outfest for his latest film, Two Eyes. I was excited to get a chance to see you a sneak preview of it yesterday. It has been playing at Outfest ever since. Please welcome for the first time to Left the Straight Show, the talented Mr. Travis Fine. Travis, how you doing? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to come on, my friend. I know it's been a busy time here with uh, Outfest. Let's talk about this a sec. I mean, we're going to talk about your films in a moment. You've been doing the film festival circuit quite successfully for quite a while now. What's it going to feel like going into this world premiere in the age of COVID? It's got to be a little strange. It is. It is quite strange. And I'll, I'll tell you, we, uh, you know, we we locked picture back in, uh, in February and March, uh, really in mid-March, we locked picture. And, then it was, well, what do we do? And we just sort of circled for a bit. And then we said, no, let's go ahead and finish post-production. We figured out a workaround with, you know, doing ADR with actors on their phones remotely. And we just figured out workarounds, six smart workarounds. And as we spoke our head up with the finished product, uh, there was Outfest. And we were looking for a wonderful slot to have a world premiere. And I, my last film, uh, yeah. Yeah. Played uh, at Outfest and you know, won, won a bunch of awards there, and we had a wonderful time at the festival. And man, and they said we'd love to screen your movie, and we'd love to do it as a drive-in movie, online for for people who don't can't make it to the drive-in, but a drive-in movie at the Calamigos Ranch in Malibu, outside under the stars on the 30th of August. I, it, I had to pinch myself um, because I. I Look, it's it's making it's it's finding silver linings and lemonade out of lemons, and to have a screening sure. like that with this film is uh, is a dream come true. Truly, um, it's a wonderful place for us to have our world premiere. Well, that is awesome, and I'm glad to see Drive is actually coming back. There's been some very creative ways to do filmmaking and film presenting lately, so I'm pretty excited for you on that. Let's start into some yeah. background, though, since it's your first time on the show. I mean, I know you were. Uh, Born in Atlantic, Georgia, but you also went to a pretty famous zip code for high school. Talk about where you grew up and what kind of a kid were you? Uh, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. I was um, I was a theater geek when I was a kid. I mean, when I was a kid, I, I six years old, I saw a play at, at the Atlanta Children's Theater, and I told my parents I want to go be in a, on that on a play. And a year later, I did my first show there. And I, I spent a lot of time as a young kid bouncing back and forth uh, between sports school and a lot of theater, a lot of professional theater. Um, and, uh, and then at 14, I went to the children's theater school in Minneapolis. So I, I really kind of was narrowed in on that, uh, at 14, but, uh, an interesting thing happened. My parents had split up and 
my mom sat me down in Atlanta, Georgia, and she said, well, son, you're, you're about to start ninth grade, and you can either stay here and go to school here in Atlanta, or you can move out to California with dad and go to Beverly Hills High School. And as a 14-year-old <laughs> boy, that wasn't, that wasn't too tough a choice to make. I said, check, right. please. And uh, I love my mom, but I was like, check, please. I'm out of here. Um, and uh, so off I, off I went to Beverly Hills. I was a Beverly, Beverly Hillbilly and had a, a, a wonderful experience there. And, and I've lived here ever since. That was in 1980, uh, 82, 3, 4, somewhere like that, 83. That I think. is awesome. I love that story. Yeah. And talk about, I mean, you said that you, you, you're bisexual. You're part of our LGBT community. What kind of draws you to those type of films? You've had a couple very successful, and this one I think is going to be hugely successful. What, uh, what's your kind of first experience finding your tribe and what brings you back to films that, for the community? Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's, been, it's been an interesting journey. Um, uh, you know, when I, when I first came to this story, I was in my mid-20s, uh, and I'd read about an artist uh, who travels in Native territories, and, and I, ultimately, it, it's not a story that I wanted to tell him that I felt that was right to tell him, but as I really, a couple of years ago, started to, to craft the script, um, the word authenticity uh, kept sort of rearing its head and, and talking about mm. characters and uh, finding their authenticity, and there's a, a speech, a beautiful, I think it's beautifully delivered um you know it gives me goosebumps literally as i'm saying it because i i helped shape the words uh but then you give it to an actor like joshua leonard and he gave this just this beautiful speech in the middle of the movie and it's sort of a showstopper as far as i'm concerned where he he talks about coming to his truth and finding uh, you know not society's truth not his partner's truth not his parents truth not anybody's truth but his own truth and it's been quite right. an interesting uh it's been quite an interesting journey uh because there are so many parallels and this is by far my most personal film ever. And it's interesting that, you know, it is my most personal film ever. There's, there's so many uh, elements of me and, and a number of the characters. So, um, uh, anyway, that's, that's, uh, it's, it's lovely that's to be able to, yeah, to have a piece of art to sort of express what's working in, inside your mind. And I think ultimately, you know, one of the things that I love about uh, great art, and, and I don't even, it doesn't even have to be great art. One of the things that I loved about Instagram when it first started, I think it's quite changed now, but uh, it, it really allowed you an opportunity. I think great pieces of art allow the viewer, the listener, uh, whoever the, the person taking in the piece of art, to, to look through that person's eyes and see the world they, the way they see the world. This is, and mm-hmm. I as an artist, feel a wonderful not only responsibility but a great sense of joy and satisfaction in being able to say piece of cinema this is how i see the world this is what the world looks like to me this is the musicality of the world this is the lushness of the world this is the love of the world the passion of the world the stories of the world that matter to me and if they matter to somebody else and resonate with somebody else wonderful then we're, we're of similar mindset and uh i think it's an exciting opportunity both that sort of as a as a as an artist and then that sort of circular connection that I have with people who watch the, the film and, and maybe see right. the world the way I see it, you know, and, and now we're, now we're in communication, even though we're not in literal communication, they are, we are in communication because they are watching and I'm, you know, it's, it's a, I think it's quite profound and quite important uh, 
for all of us. And it's one of the reasons why I love watching great cinema and looking at great art and listening to great music because it, it, I'm, I'm in communion. I'm in communion and in communication with that artist. So, right. Well said. I love that. Well, let's go through a little bit of your past here, kind of briefly. You were uh, acting quite a while there. Um, start early mm-hmm. and kind of move into it. Young Writers, uh, that was your first probably hint, I guess, working with Melissa Leo. Um, I love Josh mm-hmm. Rowland. Talk about that experience. Um, how was that? It was wonderful. Um, I was, uh, when I graduated from Beverly Hills High School, um, I bumped around in college for about a semester. I played, I was a football player, so I played one semester of football, and then I tore my ankle up, and I left college, and I said, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go do this Hollywood thing. And, um, you know, I was sort of, as, as it's not an uncommon story. You're sort of bumping along on the, you know, the, the, the uh, bumping along trying to make ends meet and waiting tables, and I got a couple jobs here and there, and, and uh, as, a, as an actor, and then this TV series came along and it was interesting because I read the script and they were having me audition for Cody, who was this sort of loud, boisterous, uh, bold braggart. And I, I, so I read it for the casting director and I said, Hey, listen, I, I there's this other character, Ike, he's, he's bald, he's mute. Uh, I want to read for that character. <laughs> they said, we don't know how to audition <laughs> for that character. What are you going to do? And I said, well, I, I came up with, can we, can I show you what I came up with? And so sure enough, in perfect, the way it should have been, I ended up getting that role. And Stephen Baldwin ended up getting the, the, the braggart, and the, the loud, strutting, <laughs> crowing, you know, which is perfect for Stephen. That's the role he was, you know, he was right. playing that role. Um, um, so it, and it was wonderful. And I think the only thing, my only regret is uh, I don't think, I don't think I quite appreciated just how miraculous and wonderful that experience was. There were three networks at the time. There was our Fox had just started that year. So there were three right. networks, four networks, you know, Fox is a fledgling network. I, I was on a TV series doing a Western shooting in Tucson. I mean, it was, and, <laughs> uh, you know, and I, but I spent a lot of time as a young man in my twenties, you know, gnashing my teeth and not, I didn't have enough stuff in the scenes and I didn't. And I, I'd love to go back in time and smack myself and go, this is the good stuff. This is the stuff you're supposed right. to really appreciate. But it was a wonderful experience. Melissa is uh, an immensely talented actress, so I, I, you know, we'll probably get to the space between. I ended up working with her later. Josh still remains a friend to this day, um, and Greg Rainwater still remains a friend to this day. Don Franklin is one of my oldest, dearest friends. So um, there were some friendships and connections that came out of that, and it was my first entree into you know this sort of acting world in, here in Hollywood. Right. Nice. And just for my own edification, I'm a huge sci-fi geek, so we got to talk about your uh, two-parter on Quantum Leap because Dean Stockwell mm-hmm. could do no wrong by me. Um, Scott mm-hmm. Bakula is mm-hmm. a good actor, but talk about that experience. It, that was that was actually wonderful. Um, I had a funny experience. Just it's funny you bring that up because about two months ago, I uh, I googled uh, the episodes because I hadn't seen them in you know 20 years or whatever it's been. And right. the, there's, I'm watching a scene where I'm kicking out a window and the house is on fire and I'm jumping down from a house that's on fire and I'm watching myself. I know it's me because I recognize myself. But if you put <laughs> a gun to my head and said, did you ever shoot a scene where you jumped out of a And I, I couldn't remember filming it. And I thought, oh, you know, you funny. start to worry, you know, is it Alzheimer's? Have I, you know, <laughs> but it was, a, it, was a, it was a strange out-of-body experience to see myself doing something I didn't quite remember. 
But I do have vivid memories of shooting that show because Scott and Dean were immense professionals. Um, I could imagine. And I played a I played a character that had a stutter, um, and I uh, I remember I had a, a stuttering a consultant who I worked with, and it was you know this is back in the day when I mean I, when when I started shooting. Uh, the young writers I spoke in Native American sign language, and I asked the producers on the flight up to shoot the pilot, "Who's going to teach me the Native American sign language?" They went, "I don't know." Literally, they just, <laughs> we don't know. I mean, you, can you imagine in 2020 that sort of, you know, just sort of irresponsibility of like whatever, it's just just do whatever, right. just move your hands around, it'll be fine. But that will but not fly. Quantum leap. No, that w- and with the young writers, I went and found a book. I went and bought a book on Native American Sign Language, and I would translate the scripts. I would get each script, and I would translate my lines using that book. But, wow. but I remember specifically they had uh, a gentleman who was the president of, I think it was like the National Stuttering Association, or and he was on set consulting. And I remember feeling very, very safe and felt like the producers, you know, they were, they were doing it right. That's awesome. I love that story. And it was fun doing, and and it was fun doing the mirror. The mirror, the mirror scene was great too. Doing because I got to do a mirror scene with, with, uh, with Scott, where you know right. we both had the same wardrobe and we're looking at one another, and it's you know it's it was fun and knowing the show and then being you know in the in the, the quantum leap mirror across from back it was great. Exactly, that's the coolest part of the whole thing. And then one yeah. last one, I'll jump on on the acting just because I am absolutely in love with Dixie Carter talk about a couple times on family law. Uh, Kathleen Quinlan's amazing. Um, I don't know Christopher McDonald as well, but I just love Dixie Carter. How was that experience? It was, uh, it was good. It was again, consummate professionals, wonderful actors, but it was a really interesting time in my life. And, and I jokingly say, uh, kind of jokingly say I, that I'm in a 12 step program for actors and I go up in the meetings. I'm like, "Hi, I'm Travis. I'm an actor." And they go, "Hi, Travis." I go, "It's been 15 years since my last job." And everybody goes, "Yay!" Um, and I'm not. It's not literal, but I kind of. I knew at that moment. I knew when I was shooting that, that I was going to be transitioning out of acting. And it really was. It was the last. Uh, it was the last real. I, I think I shot one uh, small scene in a movie that a friend was producing. After that. And I ended up doing one small role in my own movie because we lost this location and I had the pilot uniform and it fit me. And so I ended up, but I knew I was quitting. So it was, you know, I guess it's like, I guess it's like spending last night in bed with a woman you're about to get divorced from, you know, you kind of go, okay, right. <laughs> it'll, yeah. it'll be good, but you know, <laughs> this is over. <laughs> right. So, oh my God. It's such a great way to put it. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, let's, I want to transition into writing for just a second as far as episodic TV goes, because I want to know the mindset of going in and writing for a show like you wrote for Dick Van Dyke, which I would just freak out over for Diagnosis Murder. Does that come into your yep. mind when you're writing this, or do you not think about that? You're just thinking of the story. Remember how I said earlier that I'd love to go back in time and grab my younger self and throw myself up against the wall and go, listen, dude, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's some good stuff. I, I uh, Michael Gleason, hired me and uh, uh, God rest Michael Gleason soul. He's a wonderful man. He was the executive producer of the show. He had read a script uh, that I had, so I had sold a, a, a pirate adventure movie set in 1929, sold it to a company down at Paramount. He read the script. He loved it. He said, Hey, I'd love to have you come write some television for me. And he hired me to write that episode. And it was not only a, a great learning experience. Part of the learning experience was that I 
wasn't real fond of writing television. Um, that just wasn't okay. my, it wasn't my thing. Um, and I, that became kind of, kind of clear and not that there's anything wrong with television, but television at that time was, again, was four networks and there was very formulaic television. And, right. um, and by Michael's own admission, it was a formulaic show. Diagnosis murder was a formulaic show. You know, there's a setup, there's a criminal, there's the, um, but, uh, but I'd love to go back in time because guess what I did not do? I did not go to the set on the oh. project that I'd written for Dick Van Dyke and meet Mr. Dick Van Dyke, icon of oh, icon. Oh, that is a head clap. I was, that's I, a head clap, right? Mr. Travis. I was, oh, my goodness. That's beyond a head clap. That's a head hammer. That's where you hit yourself in the head and go, <laughs> what were you thinking? That's Dick blanking Van Dyke. I mean, come on. So I, that's a, that's wow. a, that's a, a, it's, a, it's interesting. Every time I see him. It is something that I think about, and I go, "What an ass you were for not going to the set and meeting <laughs> Mr. Van Dyke and saying, I, you know, thank you for everything you've done, and thank you for, anyway." So, that's amazing. Now, how many episodes did you do, Doctor Quinn? Was that a one-off as well, or uh, um, Chad Allen? I've, I've been a fan of him. Jane Seymour, actually, my brother worked with him. My brother was an extra in a lot of films, and she was probably the nicest uh, okay. person to extras and people that he's ever met and he was nice she was nice to our family got a big thing for my dad i mean talk about just that experience for just a quick second that was that was a very um i that was a weird experience in that uh, they asked me to come in and write an episode i went in and pitched some stuff ultimately the script that was written they decided not to produce and it was never produced it never was on the air so no, I, I've seen that it's on my. I, I was told and I've seen that it's on my IMDb page, but it wasn't a produced episode. So I guess I gotcha. actually wrote an episode for them. But again, it was pretty clear at that point that that writing television was just not going to be my career path. It's not. It wasn't my passion, and not something that I, you know, not something gotcha. that I was going to do as a as a as an ongoing career. No, I understand that. That's very cool. Well, let's kind of jump into the first one, kind of uh, making some noise. Let's talk about Space Between. Again, working mm-hmm. with Melissa Leo, who now is, of course, an Academy Award-winning actress, which we got to talk about. But yes. So you met her in Young Riders. Talk about what brought her to mind for this part, and let's talk about this film in general. Well, this, this film was written, The Space Between was written, uh, when I talked about um, wanting to leave the business and knowing I was going to leave the business and, you know, uh, the reason I reason I was leaving the business, you know, just as you know, in a divorce, if you fall in love with somebody else, you get a divorce. I'd fallen in love right. with wine. Um, I had fallen in love with aviation, and I ultimately left the business. I went back to school. I got my degree in aviation science. I took. I was taking flight lessons. I ended up working as a flight instructor. I ended up getting hired by an airline. And two years after my first flight, I'm sitting at thirty six thousand feet with my feet up on the console of a, you know, fifty seat passenger jet. <laughs> With 50 passengers behind me, a cup of coffee in my hand, I'm looking out the window going, how the fuck did I get here? Oh, oh, oh I can't say that. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm and literally like, how did I get here? And But here's the thing. A storyteller, I'm a storyteller. I always have been, um, whether I'm writing or whether – and so uh, I started looking around, and there was this – and I – I started thinking about the unaccompanied minors, and ni- or I started thinking about 9/11 from the from the captains and the and the pilots' perspective. And so I asked my captain, I said, "What was it like?" And he said, "Oh, it was crazy. We got a call from New York Center, and they told us if you don't follow our direction, you're going to be shot down by a jet, uh, by a fighter jet." And he said, it, "Like they had no they had no idea what was going on. They were up in the air, and they landed, wow. and they walked in the terminals and saw it, and went, holy, 
so I said, wow, that's, that's a very interesting point of view and perspective. And I, I remember going to sleep at night, and I remember thinking, I wonder about unaccompanied minors. So I asked the captain, same captain the next day, I said, were there unaccompanied minors? He said, there, actually, I heard a story about it. A, a flight attendant who got stuck with this kid down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, stuck in a hotel for five nights with this kid. And I thought, well, that's – and so this story started to craft, and it originally was called UM, which stands for unaccompanied minor. And that ultimately became the script for The Space Between, and I had written uh, this sort of uh, brash, <clears throat> hard-drinking, um, lonely flight attendant. And Whoopi Goldberg is an actress I'd worked with back uh, on, on Girl Interrupted, and I kept hearing Whoopi's voice as I was writing the character. I just – all I saw was Whoopi, and, and so uh, I finished the script, and um, – I knew I was going to come back and make a movie. I knew it was time for me to come back and, and you know, sort of finish that part of my journey. And right. I happened to be watching Frozen River. And I said, holy, it's Melissa. And, <laughs> um, you know, my old friend who just was – and she was nominated for an Oscar for Frozen, for Frozen River. And I had not seen – and so I sent her the script. It arrived, you know, God bless Melissa Leo. I, I love that woman. Um the script arrived, uh, FedEx tracking arrived at like 10 o'clock and in the morning and like 10, 40, 10, 30, 40, something, I got an email from her saying, I'm in, I love the script. I love this character. And she told me on page three, she said she was already wow. like, because the flight attendant dresses down this, this passenger as being an ass. And, uh, so God bless her. She agreed to do it. And she came to work for peanuts. You know, she worked in SAG, ultra low budget scale, making a hundred bucks a day and rolling her sleeves up and getting the movie made with me. And man, we got that movie made. And we premiered at Tribeca at the Tribeca Film Festival. And uh, then the most unlikely of things that I could not have expected, making a little tiny indie movie. I expected we'd maybe get a little tiny theatrical run or something. And I get a call from our sales agents and they said, uh, uh, the, um, the USA Network wants to buy your movie and air it as a special, as a you know, TV movie special on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. So it elevated the visibility of the project in a wonderful way and gave it a life that it you know, might not have ever had if it had just sort of languished in, you know, in the indie cinema world. Right. So. Wow, such an incredible story. That, that had to be a phone call you're just not expecting out of the blue, and how gratifying is that? It really, and it's funny as I was talking about that phone, and I haven't thought about that phone call in a long time. You know, you're bringing up, you're sort of, it's like you're walking through my life, shaking things, and I go, oh yeah, I forgot about that. And, you know, it's kind of wonderful, <laughs> dusting cobwebs off memories. Um, but I remember, uh, I remember, we, I was in Austin, Texas, and I remember the phone call came, and I remember I was at a bar, and I and I remember I walked outside the bar. And I remember them telling me that, and I just floating back into the bar, like literally floating back in, and uh, you know, ordering a round of drinks and toasting, and a group of us celebrating. I mean, it was just—it's one of those moments. So again, now you notice I'm starting to get a little bit older, a little bit more mature, and I'm starting to actually appreciate moments as opposed to blowing past them like Dick Van Dyke and you know being a star right, of the TV right. series. So <laughs> now the appreciate the maturity and the intelligence and the wisdom of age is starting to kick in, and I appreciate and recognize. The great moments. So it was. Uh, that growing was quite up, a Travis, I feel the same way. <laughs> I, I hear you. I'm around the same age, so it's amazing what we what we tend to contemplate these days. That's. Have you ever happened to in, last time in New York City or any time New York City go by the memorial? Just for. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, 
I, I went there. I went there when I was flying. I went there uh, as a pilot. I, I, I went there, uh, so that would have been 2002, three, 2003 or four, somewhere in there. And then wow. I've been back uh, a, a couple times since then. We went there uh, both times. We went to Tribeca because any day now ended up premiering at Tribeca as well. And so yeah, right. I've been there a couple times. Nice, nice, nice. And I'd what love was to go on thing, any day. Oh, go I ahead. was going to say one of the thing that one of the thing that was really wonderful was uh, the uh, we had a special screening for um, some of the families of uh, people who uh, some of the first responders and some of the people who lost family uh, in 9/11. We had a special screening. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg was part of the event, uh, and he came out. And then there was a, an event afterwards, wow. and uh, there was a group of uh, uh, folks from the um, God, I'm going to blank on the uh, uh, the the, uh, the subway. Uh, the transit workers, just the regular transit workers, or transit, was it a, yes. a certain group? Okay. Uh, no, it, I think it was I think it was the tra- I think it was the transit authority ended up giving me a special New York token. Transit authority. Uh, New, right. New York Transit Authority gave me a special token as, as sort of an appreciation uh, for making the film and bringing the story to light. So it was, that was, that was a nice experience. That is awesome. I love that. Well, let's go on to the next film that was uh, hugely received any day. Now, Alan Cumming is amazing. And Garen Dillahunt, mm-hmm. like I said, I'm a huge sci-fi nerd, but he was in the gifted and an X-Men series. So I love him as well, but talk about any day now and mm-hmm. how that came to pass. Uh, any day now, um, after the, the relatively modest but nice little success of the space between, I, I, I wanted to make another film, and I I didn't have a story that I I didn't have my own story that I wanted to tell at that moment, um, and so I put the word out to friends, close friends that I trusted. I said, Hey, I'm looking for a character-driven drama that can be shot on a you know a, a modest budget. Um, anybody got anything? And I got you know a bunch of scripts, and one of them was. Uh, my old friend from high school and music supervisor, PJ Bloom said, Hey, my dad has the script. It's about, uh, 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 a queer hairdresser in New York city who adopts the, a special needs kid. And I said, oh, okay, well send it to me. And I read it. And what I responded to in a massive way was this, this sort of brash, bold character, this, this, this guy who was in so many ways, uh, authentic and you know again that that notion of authenticity um and you know I, so I, I i responded to that character but i but i couldn't find my way into the story um because mm. i kept saying well i you know I, I, I don't have really any experience with special needs and uh, the young young boy was written as a six-year-old as sort of you know or a young kid who sort of kind of called around and grunted and didn't make a lot of noise and i, I kept thinking i don't see my way in and through a series of what is unfortunate events and oftentimes what comes out of unfortunate and misfortune and, and issues is sometimes some, you know, art can come out of it. And in this case, uh, I was dealing with some personal stuff in my own life, uh, as it related to one of my, one of my children and, uh, feeling like I was like the legal system was, and, and uh, other things that were going on, were in a sense conspiring to pull this child away, and I couldn't understand. And I had a lawyer saying none of this is right, and none of this is just. But 
this is the way the legal system works. And I, and I just found myself just, and so I, I broke down crying one day thinking about my daughter and I went, I know why that story matters to me. And so what I did is I just took the script and I started kind of rebuilding from page one and George Arthur Bloom, who wrote the original script, wrote a beautiful original script, but it wasn't my story. And the only way to tell it was for me to, in a sense, walk into the, you know, metaphorical house of his script and say, I'm going to keep the foundation. I'm going to keep the base. I'm going to keep the, you know, the, basic some of the basic structures here but a lot of walls are coming out a lot of doors and things are going to get moved around and second story is going to be added and all these other elements that that were me and were personal to me i brought to the story and then at that point it was a matter of trying to find the right cast and um i actually called Al, i cold called alan, alan cummings agent and uh nice. to his credit you know he's, he's at ca but to his credit he picked up the phone and got on the phone with this, you know, indie filmmaker who's talking to him, and I'm asking him about Mark Anthony. I said, "Listen, you know, uh, 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 no, not Mark Anthony, Ricky, uh, 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 Ricky Martin." I said, "Hey, is Ricky? You know, I'm, 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 I was watching Ricky Martin. I was an actor." And he said, "Look, Ricky's booked till like, you know, he's booked till for the next two <laughs> years. He's not available, and he just had kids, and like, you know." And so he said, "Tell me about the character." So I told him the character, and he said you don't want Ricky Martin, you want Alan Cumming. And I went, <laughs> you're right, I do want Alan Cumming. And uh, turns out Alan's manager also represents Melissa Leo. So when they heard that the wow. guy directed Melissa and that wanted to cast Alan, it was a no-brainer. Uh, and uh, so we locked him in. Garrett was a challenge because we had gone and talked to a lot of actors for that role and we got passed, 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 passed. Nobody wanted to play the role. Nobody wanted to play the role. We were two weeks out from filming. We hadn't cast a role. And my casting directors, to their credit, kept hounding me about this guy, Gary Dillahunt. And I said, I'm just not familiar with his work. I'm sorry. I just, I don't watch a lot of television and I just don't know his work. And I, I hadn't seen him in movies. And I, and I recognized him from one thing. I said, yeah, I know that guy, but, and they said, please trust us. And so when I finally saw his work, I said, holy crap, this guy's amazing. Uh, right. And he got submitted the script, and he passed. And I said, "No, you can't pass." And <laughs> I got him on the phone. I got him on the phone, and I just, you know, if you've ever done any sales, you know what it, it, objection handlers. I had to figure out what his objections sure. were. And he, he said, "He said, look, I'm finishing up a season of a show. My wife and I are supposed to go to the Bahamas, and I need a break, and I need to go spend some time with my wife. I love your script, I love the character, but I'm." And I said, "So." If I could get you here, and if I could get your wife here, and then if I bought you a ticket to go to the Bahamas, both of you, would, would that – and he's like, oh, you're good. <laughs> I said, well, dude. I, I like that. You are good. Oh, wow. And, uh, and I handled his objections, and I got him to say yes, and I'm so thrilled that he did because his participation in the film actually changed the edit of the movie – um, my editor, Tom Cross, who went on to win an Oscar for Whiplash and was nominated for La La Land, should have been nominated for First Man, and he just recently cut the Bond movie. Anyway, Tom and I, we found our originally the movie opened with Rudy, with this, with this sort of big drag queen number. And we right. realized that the movie didn't open right. It, it set the audience up for Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and then, spoiler alert, we hit you with a downer, you know, thoroughly depressing ending and so we we kept saying there's a, there's a tonal problem here and so we found uh we did some pickup shots with the young man walking through the streets of la um and we what we ultimately found was a way into the script not through alan's character but through garrett garrett 
and uh, we found a piece of footage of Garrett looking out the window when the camera was just rolling. It wasn't even a real, you know, we weren't filming anything. He was just wondering if we were rolling or not, and he was looking out the window. We went and did some pickup shots of an exterior of a club, and now all of a sudden we're able to, to enter the club and enter this world through wow. Garrett's eyes. And it's a, t- it's a testament to him as an actor that, you know, that the Alan's showy performance, which is beautiful and showy and loud, but ultimately, the heart of the movie and that and entering into the film came from this sort of solid, quiet performance that Garrett gives. That's great. Wow, I love that story. And, it went on and, to do – oh, go ahead. Finish your thought. No, I was going to say, in a wonderful side note, I was just trading text with Garrett not, you know, an hour ago, and he's coming to our – he's going to be at the premiere of, of Two Eyes, so it's, it'll be nice to see him. I haven't seen him in a number of years. Fantastic. Well, it went oh, yeah. on to win such great in the awards circuit. I mean, over 20 audience and best picture awards. But talk about the experience. I mean, we talked about the experience of in between of USA Network. All of a sudden, this is blowing up in Tokyo. Was that expected? Talk about that experience. Was not expected at all. Um, so there were there were a few things that were quite unexpected with any day now. The first was when we won the audience award at Tribeca. Now, I, look, when, when you make a movie, I mean, Alan Cumming, I love when Alan Cumming, <laughs> he, would, he, would describe, he would describe the movie like this. He says, you know, when you walk into Blockbuster and it's like comedy, drama, action, adventure, horror. Our movie is in the sections that weepy gay period drama with Down syndrome children. That's pretty damn good Alan Cumming, I love that. Yeah, yeah. So... So when you make a weepy gay period drama with a Down syndrome child and a, down, and a downer ending, uh, on paper you go, well, hopefully the critics like it and hopefully it finds a little niche audience. You don't expect to win audience awards, you know? Right. You, you, it's, just, it's just not – on paper it's not the kind of movie that you go – you know, it's not the feel-good movie of the summer. Like, you know, <laughs> but when we won that first audience award, I went, huh, that's interesting. I didn't expect that. And then we went to the next festival and we won the audience award. We went to Chicago and we won the audience award. We went to Seattle and we won the audience award. We went to Woodstock and we won the audience award. And it just became one after another after another. And I went, holy hell, this is, you know, this is a, strangely, this is a crowd pleaser. Right. Even given the subject matter. So that was, that was quite a surprise. Um, the distribution of it was, you know, it was kind of to be expected. It's a small little indie film with, again, it's a weeping gay period drama with a down, downer ending. You know, it didn't get a lot of traction in the in the cinemas here. I mean, it had, we had wonderful reviews, and uh, but that sort of audience award, I think, if you know, if people had found it, but it's so tough to find indie cinema, uh, you know, unless you're sort of lightning in a bottle. So I, I figured the film's going to have a nice little run here. It's going to we we opened a bunch of film festivals around the world, went won more audience awards, had nice little openings here and here and here, and then you know, I knew it was opening in Japan, and I got an email one day. <laughs> It said, you better be sitting down when you watch this. And I got, <laughs> I got a video that started at the door of a theater in Ginza and went out down a half a city block, rounded the corner, went down an entire other city, the entire city block, and then wrapped all the way back around. Like, it was like a whole city. And I said, so they called me and they said, did you see that? And I said, what is that? They said, that's the line for your movie. So what are, you, what are you talking about? I mean, it opened on one screen in Ginza. You know, it should be sort of pop in, pop out. What ended up happening is it ran for over a year. It played in every city Amazing. in Tokyo. It, it played in Tokyo for over a year. They had 
dedicated tissue boxes with the characters on it where you so you go in and you get your program and then and then you you because in Japan they 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 sell theater programs and you can buy programs but they would hand out these tissue boxes so that people could go in and watch the movie and they with the characters on it and, and so they would have their cry and they would watch the movie and so when wow. I finally went to um, to Japan. And my first experience, uh, Isaac, the young gentleman with uh, the young man with Down syndrome, he and his mom and I went to Tokyo to do press, and you know just found packed theaters, lines around the block, and press. I mean, it was like it was like rock star treatment. We'd get in the van, and there'd be you know the entire van would be surrounded by people and flash bulbs going off, and I was I was like, what is going on here? And something That's very interesting. Um, we have 9/11 in this country. And I asked somebody, I said, why is this film taken off? Why has this film become such a hit? And, they, and uh, a friend of mine who is Japanese said, do you have 9-11? We have 3-11. And I said, what's 3-11? And she said, that's Fukushima. That's when the tsunami hit. And mm. just as if, 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 you know, for any of us who are old enough to remember the days, the, the hours, the days, and even the year post 9-11, there was a tangible quality of uh, impermanence of life. There was a tangible quality right. of how things can change in a massive way. People change jobs. People, I mean, kind of similar to what's going on now. It's where, where we're seeing in this pandemic. I, it was a it was a seismic shift in the in in the nation's mindset. Right. And there was a very similar period of mourning that was going on in Japan because it was such a massive blow to their infrastructure as a massive blow to loss of life. It was one of those seismic events that happens. And what I was told was, uh, you know, in in what is traditionally a very stoic society, the film gave people an opportunity to go to the cinema and have a big old cry and, and, you know, watch something that just reduced them to tears and made them laugh. So that happened. The 311, but, but, one of the biggest, the, probably the big, there's a woman named Liliko who I've since become friends with. She's a, she's a television host in Japan. She's very well known, half Swedish, half Japanese, very funny, comedic. She does funny characters. She does film reviews. She does a morning show. She got on to do her review of our film. And on live television, she broke down crying. And she said, I can't, like, basically, in essence, I can't continue. Like, she was sobbing. And wow, it, it, it is the equivalent of, you know, in our world, it's the equivalent of having somebody like Oprah, you know, sort of starts to talk about a movie. It just changes the trajectory because so many people, there's so many eyes on her and they saw her true, honest, emotional reaction. So I'm, you know, I'm forever indebted to her. I love her both as a person. She's a wonderful person and she's become a friend. Um, but it changed the trajectory of our little movie. And all of a sudden, and I just... I was just able to publicly release today uh, that I've known this for a while. Uh, it is being remade as a stage play at one of the large theaters in Tokyo with Aman Miyamoto's directing. He's the first Asian-American man to ever direct a play on Broadway. He's a visionary Japanese stage director, and he is transforming that play into a stage musical. So it, it, That's life amazing. Yeah. Congratulations. That is awesome. Thank you. I love Thank you. The way trajectories go when you least expect them. Very, very yeah. cool. All right, well, let's get into this uh, latest film, Two Eyes. As we said, premiering here now, world premiere at the Outfest, which is a different animal in itself, as we've talked about this year. 
I actually have had Ryan Casada on my show about a month and a half, two months ago as a singer. I knew he was an actor, um, but wasn't familiar with his work. So this was exciting for me to watch him in his portion of this. I'm one of those Mm -hmm. guys, um, Travis, that figures out movies very, very quickly. And when the kind of reveal came, how it pulled all these together, I was like, you son of a gun, you got me. Um, Amazing, amazing, amazing. I loved it. Talk about the story a little more. Well, some stories, uh, some stories I know where they come from and I can point, you know, like I just, as I talk about the space between is me as a curious guy on a flight deck of a plane. Hey, what was it like on the morning of nine 11? Well, that's, that's a direct sort of line from that curiosity to that script being written. Um, right. I don't, I'm not quite sure. Uh, there's parts of this story and parts of the script that are, uh, Wonderfully mysterious to me, and I say that um, I was in, I was I had written the first draft, uh, and I, I I work with somebody who is part witch, part guru, part life coach, part health and physical fitness, and she's a she's a a bundle and ball of cosmic cool witchy woo woo nice. And we finished one of our calls, and. Uh, she called me back and she said, I got a question for you. So what she said, have you ever thought about writing a movie about suicide? And I said, no, why? And she said, you're going to write a movie about suicide. It's going to change people's lives. And I said, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know, but okay. I hear you. You sound very, very clear. She goes, I'm very, very clear. And I said, got it, got it, got it, got it. Hung up the phone, went and made myself lunch, went and opened up the first draft of two eyes to start doing rewrites and I see the opening scene, <laughs> which I won't. Re- I guess I won't reveal. Right. But the opening, the opening scene is a kid, you know, <laughs> killing himself. And I went. Wow. And I say that only because there. When I say that I'm, I, it was almost like there were parts of this script that were pinned and came through me, not because of me. I was a conduit to something much deeper than myself. And I knew that to be even further true when I finished the script. Uh, uh, interestingly, my representative said, I, I, I don't like the script. It's not good. I don't like you. Don't, you shouldn't do this. And I said, no, I'm going to do this. And I said, well, how, where the hell am I going to cast a, a trans woman in her 60s? I, I think i got to go find an actress. In there. And so I'm Googling. I find Kate. Oh, my God. I find Kate, the most wonderful wow. woman in the world. And I, and I reach out to her, and I send her the script, and she – we had a call, and she said, so you, you knew about me? Did you, you know? I said, no, I'd never heard of you before. She said, but you, some of these lines that you've written are like things that I, I said, I know. And I said, she said, how did, I said, I don't know. I said, all I can tell you is when I started hearing you speak and some of your, I, I, it came through me. Same experience to Ryan. Ryan said, did you know my past and my history with, you know, some of the struggles that I've had with, you know, fighting through some mental stuff. And I said, I had no idea. I said, Ron, I never even heard wow. of you. I didn't know who you were. So something bigger than me was working in me and through me in a wonderful way. And I allowed it. And I brought so much, I, I, I tried to bring so much of uh, my own personal perspective about authenticity and mixed in. And I can tell you, it started off as a story set in 1868. I, I, I knew I wasn't going to be able to both finance. And, and for a lot of reasons, I was like, 
I should um, maybe I want to ping pong between two time periods. I mean, so I started writing this 1968 story, and I said, like, I don't know what this is. And there's this therapist, and she wouldn't shut up. And I was like, Who's this woman? She won't stop talking. She won't <laughs> stop showing up in scenes. And then, and then that became the 2020 stuff. And then the 79 stuff started to form. And then, and then I went, Well, who's but who's the therapist? And how? And then I went, and I when I started to see some of the connections revealed themselves to me in the writing process. And as I started to see some of those connections and started to figure out how these things could all connect, it was, it was exciting and surprising at times for me um, because it really was a discovery process. And so, um, you know, and I, was, I said to the script, I said, I think there's something kind of interesting and special here. Well, it was amazing. I, I appreciate you letting me see it yesterday. And as to kind of bring the listeners in, it is set in three different time periods. And like I said, I was I figured out films quickly, and I was looking where's the throughway going to be, and I just did not expect the way it kind of came through with the book, and that's all I'll say on it. But it just uh, it was a great reveal, and then it, everything just like it's dominoes, baby. It just as soon as you get that first reveal, you laid it out so well. It was such masterful storytelling. I'm just so impressed with it, Travis. I really did enjoy it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I've 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 screened it for. Uh, small groups when I was uh, when I was editing uh, because I got forced into solo editing duty on this film. As I said before, my my uh, it's a good sign when your editor on your last film has been nominated for two Oscars, won one, and your cinematographer is the first woman ever to be nominated for an Oscar. So I, I, I couldn't go back to the same creative team, unfortunately, because they're all they're making millions <laughs> of dollars now. Like, Not on your current budget, right? <laughs> Not on my current I budget. I can't I can't afford. But um, but as an editor, I, I really relied on you know. Small groups, uh, anywhere between one and three, four or five people would come and watch the film, and they watch a cut, and they and it was very helpful to. But I remember when I finally knew I kind of had it, I felt like I had something, and I screened the movie in Key West. My mother lives in Key West, and we screened for I don't know, about twenty people in a theater in Key West, and it was still a rough cut. I mean, there was the sound was still scratchy, and the pictures, you know, it's there. But when some of the when some of the reveals happened, I heard gasps in the audience, and I went, "Oh, we got him! We did it!" And I knew, I knew, I, I felt like, you know, that, that part, we had, we had, uh, we had, and you know, there were cries in the right times and laughs in the right time, and it's so, it's so heartening, you know, when you toil for something for so long, when you hear, you know, the, the reaction, kind of how you hope it, how you hope people respond to the movie, and how they, you know, and, and it was, that was a great moment to hear that gasp. I went, yeah. That's that, that awesome. Works. And you've done, I mean, this was so much your baby. Talk about the cinematography for a second because it is absolutely gorgeous. The settings and the way it was shot. Um, were you a big part of that as well? Or talk about the cinematography because I was blown away by a lot of it. Well, I will tell you um, the cinematographer, Avery Holiday, um, did a masterful job. And you know you 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 bringing it up and talking about being blown away by it. I was blown away on set, you know, watching in the monitor. Um, Avery was a trusted visual partner. Avery was very much uh, very much part of the shot design, the, the shot selection. You know, in in a lot of ways, you know, what I one of the things I said to Avery is, you are the director of photography, and it does not mean that, you know, doesn't mean you get to go just do whatever you want, but. I put a lot of reliance on them to 
uh, to sculpt the visuals of the story. I mean, I, I, there was so much heavy lifting in the writing of it and so much heavy lifting in the directing of it. And there was such a trust in Avery's visual style that I knew that they would do a beautiful job with some of the shot constructions. And so we, we storyboarded and talked quite a bit about how we wanted. And I, I had a very specific notion about long takes, particularly in, in the 1800s. I said, I want long single takes. I don't want to cut because I, my notion is that the, the time people perceived time differently then. Now right. when I'm talking to you and I look down, I look down and my phone just buzzed and I look down and I got a text and I'll, Oh, I'll respond to that later. I'm looking out the window. And we have these cuts in our, in our, in our lives. Now we have natural cuts. When your phone buzzes, that's a cut. You, you cut to an insert of a, of a screen and now you cut back to your face. And so I said, but in, but their life just sort of ambled. I said, so let's do these long single takes. And Avery, one of the reasons Avery was hired is they had done a, uh, a film called Icebox, the short film called Icebox, that were these long single takes and beautifully shot and staged. And um, so we said, let's carry that concept over into 1979. And so we tried to, as much as possible, to stay very much in the character's perspective and point of view. And mm-hmm. then we, 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 in 2020, we shifted it up a little bit. We, there were cuts. It was more shot reverse shot you know, the world is, is a little different. It's seen through kind of, in a sense, the same lens, but the way in which the world is being seen is now more choppy and more cut up. Um, and again, Avery just did, you know, I mean, you can see the end result. It just did a beautiful job. So when it, when it came time to edit, you know, there was just so much, uh, not only wonderful performances in front of the camera, but so much beautiful camera work as well. Right. Wow. No, it was. And all the performances were amazing. I mean, uh, the the portion where and I what is the the artist name character name I'm blanking on Dylan time. Dylan when Dylan sees his artwork on the wall when he comes back um, mm. that was just powerful I mean there's a, there was a lot of powerful scenes throughout the movie um, you've been having this woo woo magic on your last two films. I think you're going to be seeing some woo woo magic on this one. What are you expecting after this uh, big premiere? I mean, we're doing a little time hop here. We're talking about it. It's actually had its big premiere at the drive-in. What do you, what are your expectations for this? I will tell you, I, um, again, we go back to young man and that young guy I'd want to shake and go stop or pay attention. The young man, inside of me wants to set the expectations wants to decide how this is going to go has you know oh it's going to do this it's going to do that and what i've learned over the course of you know my my time in this existence is that those expectations will just trip you up those expectations will just Mm -hmm. create disappointment because you're either going to fall short of or past where you expect and better just to sort of stay present stay in the moment i actually i I teach yoga and meditation. I, I practice every day, but I teach once a week. I've got a dedicated class that, that comes into my class. And uh, I would be none too happy with one of my students if they started telling me, you know what, my movie's going to premiere, this is what's going to happen. I go, no, 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 no. You just, <laughs> just sit there. Um, here's, here's what I can tell you. My kids uh, who were up in Montana when we were filming, we were in the car one night, and they said, Dad, do you want to win an Oscar with this? I said, kids, I don't, I'm, I'm not even thinking about that. And they said, well, you got to want to have something. I'm like, what's – and I said, here's what I want. I want to make a wonderful piece of art. And in, and in the most ideal of all ideal worlds, I make something good enough that somebody watches it, and they say, you know what? You're pretty good at that. I'd like you, I'd like you to have 
I'd like to have you come do that for me. I'd like you to make another one. And my hope is that I make something that is good enough and strong enough that will allow me to make the next one and the next one so that I continue to have opportunities to tell the stories that matter to me. I love that sentiment. And uh, just based on everything I've seen, it's, it's going to happen, my friend. Wow. That's such a great way to look at it. Thank you. Well, congratulations, my friend. I mean, we, we have this, do we have other festivals lined up since it's such a wonky time right now? Um, what, what's next after uh, Outfest here? We, uh, th- there are, are a few festivals that we've just started to talk to, um, various uh, online. There's one that is doing this sort of mirroring Outfest and doing a, a, another drive-in. Um, uh, so we're, we're just starting to sort of poke our heads up now because, you know, you, you, you sort of keep your head down trying to finish the film and do, finish post-production and get that done and get that right. done. And now, you know, we're all collectively as a team poking our heads up and saying, okay, you know, as much as I want to just, you know, stay present and not think, I, I, I'm, I am aware that we have to have some strategy and some plan. doesn't mean that I have to be right. anchored into it, but we do have, you know, we're coming up with strategies and plans not only to have the film seen by audiences outside of Outfest, but also, you know, where's this film going to play in premiere and where is it going to eventually find a home so that, you know, lots of eyes around the world can watch it. Right. Well, I'm excited to see where it goes. Like I said, I think the woo-woo's on your side after the first couple of films <laughs> and just the gorgeousness of this film. I see lots of great things. So my listeners can follow along. Let them know the social media for the film. I know it's on Instagram and Twitter and all the fun stuff. Where can they find the film themselves? The film is on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. My producer's here right now. What's our what's our at two eyes movie? At two eyes movie. I'm I'm not a big social media guy, but but uh, so I so I didn't know the actual <laughs> at at thank you Rusty at two eyes movie on all very, the uh, very major good. social media platforms. Right. Well, Travis, fine. You have to promise to come back on any of your future projects because I'm absolutely loved with your filmmaking, my friend. Thanks for taking the time. It would be an immense pleasure, and I thank you so much for watching, for supporting, and for having me on. All right, guys, the film is Two Eyes. Follow them on social media. Support Travis, and we'll be back soon. Stay on the line for me, Travis. You're listening to Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network. Holding out for everything that I've been. The pull is strong, surrendering into it. Reaching out and naming truth To be with you is my only desire You're everything I need Feeling hollow again Too weak to pretend But I know I'm still breathing As I break all the faults To faith anymore I still need you to break it I need a night Need a night of whispers Come let me Break all the faults to faith anymore. 
All righty, guys, we are back. Thanks so much. I really appreciate Travis coming on tonight. And a big shout-out to David Reddish from Queerty, uh, the great website he is entertainment editor of. Hope you enjoyed it. We got some more interviews, pre-tapes all this week. Thanks for listening to Left to Straight Show. We are out of here. Follow us on social media. Check out the website, and have a great night, everyone. Bye-bye.